Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church today. I was going to say I'm bathed in green and red light, but that just changed to all white. I don't know. But Christmas colors, it's right like that very much. Let's begin by entering into prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love for us and your righteousness and justice. And we know that, that because you are righteous, you had to have your son come and die for us in order for us to be declared righteous in your eyes. Whoever believes in your son has eternal life. And that is all by grace. It's totally a gift of yours, Father. And we thank you so much for that. Father, we ask you today that the Holy Spirit would guide and direct our goings on here. That, that we would all pay attention to what your word has to say. That we would all participate in this song service. That we would also, Father, enjoy one another's fellowship today in the luncheon that will immediately follow this service. We also, Father, want to pray today for any of the saints that are in need or in pain or any other kind of challenge that they're facing, Father. We ask they would turn to you and we know that you have all the provision that they need. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Well, good morning again, everybody. Again, welcome here to Lighthouse Bible Church today during this Christmas season. I want to let you know that um, Marilyn and Steve aren't here today, and that's because uh, Marilyn had an accident. She had a fall, and she sprained her knee. And not only that, she broke her humerus bone. So please keep her in prayer. It's going to be a while before she's all healed up. All righty, let's uh, also begin today by keeping in mind that there are missionary organizations that are bringing the gospel to the world. And one of them that we're featuring this month is Mission Aviation Fellowship. We've been talking about this organization. Many of you are familiar with it. They uh, share the gospel, the love of Christ through aviation and technology, through planes, so that isolated people may be physically and spiritually transformed. They, of course, use the technology of, uh, of flight um, in order to reach places that no, can't be reached any other way. They can't be reached by ship. They can't be reached by anything except plane. So they bring needed supplies. They bring the truth of the gospel. They bring supplies for the uh, indigenous pastors and so forth. So please keep them in prayer. If you have an opportunity to help them in any way, their website, www.maf.org. www.maf.org. As a reminder, uh, today we're having a, our Christmas luncheon. I guess it's called, it's a church luncheon, but it's Christmas time, so we'll put them together. And uh, we want to thank everybody who has brought food or drink to celebrate. There's a rumor around that the ladies are going to have a swap afterwards, and I guess uh, the ladies know about that. I was chastised for not announcing it. The reason I didn't announce it is because I didn't know whether or not, you know, it's a woman's thing. I let the women, you know. But in any event, now I know, after, after the luncheon today, there'll be a, a woman's swap of gifts. That's always a lot of fun. All right, Christmas, we have in our service a week from today, Sunday, December 22nd, and I'm pleased to announce that we'll be having a guest speaker at that time, Dr. Rich Freeman. He will be here, and his subject matter is, without Hanukkah, there would be no Christmas. Without Hanukkah, there would be no Christmas. Fascinating subject. I'm anxious to learn more when he preaches on that next Sunday, and uh, of course, I wanted a little visual of what that's all about. Um, in fact, this is celebrating the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is our great high priest. That what was in tech form in the Old Testament, in the temple, is now in actual form in heaven, where he's our advocate, where he's offering himself and his blood for the sins of the world. So I'm really looking forward to Dr. Rich Freeman, in case you don't know, he's a um, Messianic Jew. He was a Jew by birth, became a Christian, and now he's part of an organization that's called Chosen People Ministries, and their calling in life is to bring the gospel to the Jewish people in many countries around the world. So I'm really excited to have Rich with us again, and that'll be a week from today on the Sunday, the 22nd, our Christmas service. Uh, as far as the schedule for the, for the holidays, uh, we'll have our regular Sunday services, so we'll have one next Sunday and the Sunday following. Between, though, between those two Sundays, next Thursday, we will not have Bible study. That's the day after Christmas. So we're not having Bible study next Thursday. Okay? We will have it this Thursday, but not next. And we'll pick that up again in January. All righty. We have Bibles in the back in case anybody needs a Bible. Please raise your hand and we'll get one to you. You can always pretend that you just left it in the car so we won't you know, feel too bad about that. So, In any event, um, let's get started with the message today. 
The message today comes from our letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which we've been on um, learning from for the last few weeks. That's one that I have you turn now. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. We were in chapter 13, verses 4 to 8 last week. We didn't quite finish. In this section, there are, in these verses, Paul brings up 16 qualities of love. Seven of them are positive, what love does. Nine are negative, what love does not do. And that, of course, is fitting in the context. The context, remember, is the fact that we have a Corinthian church who is abusing the spiritual gifts there, as they were in a lot of other areas. They were behaving the opposite of what love is all about. And so he has a lot of negative things about what love does not do, so that they can recognize themselves in that and understand that they have to change. Okay. So let's get started. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient. Love, by the way, these are all verbs, so it's better to say love has patience for other people. Love exhibits kindness. Love does not act in jealousy. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. You see, chapter 13 is one of the places where Paul is going to put spiritual gifts in their proper place. Okay, yes, they're wonderful. Yes, they're used to build up the body for the common good. But underneath, there has to be that reservoir of love or else they're useless. Right, that's what Paul said at the beginning of this chapter. He says, you know, if I, if I give all my money to feed the poor, and I even offer my body up to be burned, but have not love, it's of no profit to me. So he's saying that, that's, that no matter what gift you have, all right, what we all can have is the love of God, and not only have it in our hearts where the Holy Spirit pours it in, but to have it in our lives. Because remember, love does, not just is. Okay. So that's what he's doing here. He's making sure nobody misses the point that while you may think you have a more spectacular gift than somebody else, by the very fact that you're concentrating on that, then clearly love is not foremost in your thinking, right? Me, I'm foremost in my thinking. That's the problem with the church at Corinth. They were continually selfish no matter what area Paul was dealing with. And so that in one word, he he can say, this is what's wrong. You know, you are not doing what love does. You are not doing what love does not come to the Lord's table and and hoard your food and not give any to somebody who doesn't have any. Love doesn't do that. Love does not take a brother or a sister to the courts outside the church. Love doesn't do that. Love does not say, I am more knowledgeable so I can go to an idol's temple when in fact in your, in your assembly there are those who just came out of idolatry and to see you doing that would be a huge temptation. That is not love. And so he's saying here's what love does and here's what it doesn't do. Now, it, so in other words, there's more rebuke here. But it's interesting that here in verses 4 to 8a, Paul does give the saints at Corinth an indirect rebuke. It's a rebuke, but it's indirect It describes what love does and what love does not do. In other words, on stage is love, and it's saying love doesn't do this, love does that. But if you're in the audience at the drama, you can realize that, hmm, I'm I'm more on the side of what love does not do and not so much on the side of what love does. So I'm watching this play out, and it's indicting me, even though I'm never even mentioned. Paul doesn't mention the saints in chapter 13, but it's indirect. He describes what love does, what love does not do. And again, the Corinthian saints were doing things that love does not do. And they needed to be corrected. And they were. But here, he brings an objective view of the whole thing. He's saying, if you want to really understand why I'm rebuking you in some areas and pulling you into others, it's because of what love does and love does not do. The rebuke is indirect. okay, But it's very objective. All looking at the same aspects of love. 
and judging themselves accordingly. Now, last Sunday, we learned about the first seven of these 16 things that love does and does not do. So today, we're going to pick things up with the eighth one, and it's in verse 5. It's set towards the end. Love is not provoked. Love is not provoked. Now here, provoked means to get upset with somebody. To lose it, the way we would put it. I lost it with him yesterday. Or my emotions got the better of me. It's when your emotions are out of check. Emotions are fine, but they have to be under the control of your thinking. Now, so if you're thinking with love and your emotions are under your control... Right? You're not going to let them spill over with anger or, or anything else that would be harmful to your brother or sister. Now, I don't know about you, but this is very convicting to me. Uh, maybe it has to do with being Irish or something, because, you know, the Irish are not known for holding their temper. But that's what this is talking about. Don't be provoked. Don't allow somebody to get under your skin. All right? That's what it's really saying, because then you lose objectivity. You lose the ability to understand how love should enter into the picture. If you're provoked and, and, and your emotions are running wild, remember love is not an emotion. Right? Love is not a Hallmark card. Love is not being on a beautiful beach in the Caribbean and having 18 people serve you and some waiter walking on water and like, oh, we're in love again. That's not love. It's fun. Okay, but it's not love. In other words, that fleeting emotion that you may feel at the sunset is not going to carry you through when you get back on that ship, back to South Florida, and you're there, and the same problems that were there when you left are there when you come back. Only now there's more bitterness, because why can't you be like you were on that island? You see it? No, without love, the real love, the love that, that is a thinking love, that turns to action, that says, you know what, I understand now that I could really be provoked, really get emotional right now, but I'm not. You see, I'm going to allow my thinking to override my emotions. And instead, rather than use my body to be full of emotions that are negative, I'm going to use my body to do something good, because I know I really do love her. I really do love him. And and I'll lose sight of that if my emotions are out of bounds. Now, going back to the Corinthians and where this might play. Remember in chapter 6, how we had the rich and powerful taking the poor to court where they knew because they had an advantage in court for many reasons. They had money. They're, they were probably friends with the judge or the jury. That's the rich and powerful hang together. Not much different today than it was 2,000 years ago. But in any event, you can see how this would be. You know, if, if you think you're somebody, you're easily provoked by the nobodies. How dare? Who do you think you are? You just got out of prison last week. Or, you know, you, you, you're the one who cleans my toilets. How dare you? You know I'm above you, right? People who, are, who have that attitude are, are provoked easily by other people. And um, so you can easily imagine that something like that happened. A commoner or a slave they did something and they got upset. And they rashly decide under that negative emotion to take him or her to court. That's not love. Love does not do that. Continuing, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. This is another really challenging thing about love. Where we can all see love on the stage and understand that there are wrongs being done. All right, Think about Jesus now. Think about all the things that people did to him to hurt him and finally to kill him. All right, And yet he didn't take it into account, did he? At the very end, when he was on the cross, he said what? Father, forgive them all. They don't know what they're doing. And, and so that ought to be our attitude, you see. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. In other words, love does not keep a record. Does not keep a record of the hurtful things that others have done. Can you imagine, though? I want you to stop for a minute. And I want you to think about yourself and everybody else in your inner circle. When you think about those people for a minute. And I want to, th- I want to ask you to think about, just from fleeting moment, if you took an account and accounting, and kept reports on everything that ever hurt you by that person said or did. Think about that. But the other side of the coin is, what about them and the record they're keeping about you? Now, you can see, if, if you picture that, right? I've got my list. You know, you've got your list. We're all feeling like, man, you hurt me so bad. I hurt, you say, no, you hurt me so bad. 
And you see, as that builds up, the relationship sours. It goes away. And so the Lord is saying here through the Apostle Paul, don't do that. Don't keep a record of the hurtful things others have done. It will be endless. And you'll be more and more out of control with your emotions. You'll be more and more upset, bitter, and you'll be miserable. If you, if you go through your day and it's dominated by thinking about other slights and harms and why did he say that, why did he take that, why did she do this and that, you're going to have a lousy day. You're going to have a lousy day, right? And if you're the only one doing it, <laughs> you know, it's going to be like, like Paul in chapter 12 of Romans. You say, you know what? Do good for your enemies. It's like heaping hot coals over their head. You see it? Because if you're holding on to these things, you're, 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 it's as if you were throwing hot coals over your own head. All right? So don't do it. Don't keep a record of the hurtful things others have done. Love doesn't do that. Love does not keep score, if you know what I'm saying. All right, you did two yesterday. I did one today. I'm ahead two to one. You know? Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't keep score. Love doesn't keep accounts. Want to know? Because God doesn't keep accounts. I got to tell you, one of the expressions that really irks me today more than ever as I study more and more about the cross of Jesus Christ is when people say to other people, Christians, you need to keep short accounts with God. Have you ever heard that before? Keep short accounts with God? I want you to think about that for a minute. So what you're saying is is that you're going to keep a record of what you did and then you're going to keep it short. My friends, that record is infinite. It's not short. There's no way you could do anything about any sin you ever committed. There's no way. If you, if you were to keep a list of your sins, and oh, by the way, if God had ever kept a list of your sins, you'd be through. You'd be done. Because he's never done anything wrong to you, and you've done all kinds of things wrong to him and to others. So, I, And here's the point. Jesus, don't keep a short accounts. Why? Because Jesus Christ already settled your account. Right? Gone. As far as the east is from the west. That's how far I've tossed your sins away from you. So this idea of keeping a record, keeping accounts, it's out the window now. It's out the window. Because God's justice has been satisfied once for all. And now he's in a time, of, we are in a time of grace and love and forgiveness. And the idea is to understand what he's done for us and then go and do the same thing to others. What does that mean? It means that love forgives freely. Freely. Completely. All the time. No matter what. Love forgives freely. If, you, if, you have a, if you're slighted by somebody, if somebody's hurt you, if somebody's even betrayed you, the only answer out of love is to forgive them. By the way, the Apostle Peter didn't understand this at one point, because one day he went to the Lord and he asked him, he said, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And of course the Lord said, no, 70 times seven times. And that's every single day. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of hurting. I dare say I've had some real stinkers in my life, but I don't think any of them ever committed hurt against me 490 times in one day. I came close with my little brother once, but other than that. So, now the real problem, you might say, well, you know, he, he, he should be forgiven more than he is. But you know what the real problem with Peter was that day? He was keeping a tally of his brother's trespasses against him. He was keeping a record. After all, how else would he know when he got to seven if he hadn't been keeping track of the first six? No. Forgive freely. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. We'll see why. How, what, how do we draw from God's word to be in the right frame of mind to forgive freely? Well, the answer is in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. The very last verse of chapter 4, Ephesians 4, 32. How do we do that? How can I have my mind in the right place to forgive freely? It seems impossible. You know, humanly speaking, it is. I mean, I hate venturing into the waters of American politics, but let me say this much about that. It is dominated by people who can't forgive each other. You know, one party comes over here, and the other party does something bad, and then the, other, the, then the one that's having something bad to it says, you wait till we're in power again, and we're going to do that to you, only worse. That's the opposite of love. That's the opposite of forgiveness. And yet it's interesting, some of these same people will say, well, we're a Christian nation. I don't think so. Because if we were a Christian nation, really, none of that would really be going on. In any event, that's all I have to say about politics today. <laughs> 
Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted towards one another. There it is. Forgiving each other. Okay, so how, how do I do that, Lord? How do I find the thought process that I need to have to be forgiving freely? And he goes on, what does he say? Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You know, it's like, it's like the parable Jesus told one time when there was a, a servant of a, of a master or a king or wherever he was, I can't remember right now, but he owed him like the equivalent today of millions of dollars. And, and the servant knew that, that he would never be able to repay it, and therefore he would probably be in the dungeon for the rest of his life. And he went to the, to, to the master and he pleaded with him. He says, you know, I have children, I have a wife, I can't possibly ever do this. And moved with pity, the master said, I forgive you of all your debt. Then that same slave went out, found another slave who owed him a buck. And he said, I want, you, I want my dollar back. And the slave said, I can't repay you. Next week I'll repay you. He says, no, that's not good enough. I'm going to put you in the dungeon. See, that's what we do when we don't forgive. By the way, the end of that story is, well, guess what happened to that servant who was so unforgiving? He was tossed, and he was there until he could pay everything back, which he couldn't. And that's what, you know, if you think about it that way, if you say to yourself, you know, really, if I don't forgive my brother after I've been forgiven of everything by our father, well, I'm really saying that that really isn't worth that much to me. And so you can understand that that would be an affront to the Lord. We don't think of it that way. But it really is. It's saying, you know, Lord, I don't really value the complete forgiveness you gave me. Therefore, it's a lot easier for me not to forgive anybody else. Now, he's not going to throw us into the prison and the torturers. But that same, that same sense of betrayal is there. How can you do that? How can you, understanding what happened at the cross, how, why my son died, how can you possibly not forgive after all that's been forgiven of you? That's how we get the mental ability to forgive freely. All right, well, back to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. We're moving on here this morning. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. In other words, love doesn't rejoice when he sees an injustice being done, or when wrongdoing is going on. No, it doesn't at all. It mourns. It rejoices when the truth wins out. That's when it rejoices. You know, it's like a justice system. You know, there's a movie coming out about a fella who was a security guard in Atlanta during the Olympics in 1996. And there was a attempted bombing of that site of where the people were gathered beforehand. And this individual um, actually rescued, saved the lives of a couple hundred people. But what happened was that because of circumstances, because they needed to put the, have somebody take the fall, he was an attractive target because it seems like he knew too much about where the bomb was and so forth. And so they were about to railroad this guy. You know, the press had already pronounced him guilty. Uh, the, the powers that be in the, in the police realm and so forth already figured they had their man. And yet he was completely innocent. Now, there were some watching this that probably rejoiced in that unrighteousness. You know, it's great to see somebody pay the price. We see that today. It's, you know, there's people today saying, even if somebody's innocent, we don't really care because, you know, of the, of the global picture of social injustice over the last 700 years, somebody has to pay. You know, and so, but this man was, finally the truth wins out. You see, that's the opposite of unrighteousness. Seems funny, you'd say it's righteousness, and it, and it is, but it also is the truth. You see, Christ at the cross revealed the truth about what we're really like, our sinfulness. He also revealed the truth about God's righteousness. You see, until then, that had been hidden by so many. All right, love, let's keep going. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. You know, when you read the English, especially with the believe part, it makes it sound like love is gullible. Yeah, love will believe anything. You know, that's why it's really not a good, that's not a good way to put it, okay, even though, you know, it's, it's rhythmic and all of that, okay, but really what it's saying is love never tires of support never tires of supporting somebody else in need, bearing their burdens. 
Love never loses faith. That's what it really means. Love never loses faith in a situation. All right? Love never exhausts hope. Love never gives up. Love never gives up. These are the things that love is that we should, of course, also be living in. The fact that, you know what, don't get tired of supporting somebody that you're supporting. Whether it's financial, whether it's your time, whether it's somebody who's really sick, whether it's somebody who's really sick in the head, whether it's somebody who's just always there, always needy. It's easy to get tired in that situation. But love doesn't get tired. You see, love can refresh us to continue to do it. You know why? Because it has worth now. When we see that, wait a minute, God's love is in play in order for me to not lose my ability to support this person. Now all of a sudden, I am enjoying the love part. And it's a lot easier, right? His yoke is easy. His burden is light. When I just see it as my burden, it seems impossible. All right? But love itself, God's love, God is love, never tires of support. Love never loses faith. I don't want to embarrass anybody today. She knows who she is. But um, a woman, who's here today, I will say, um, had a child who was a very difficult child. And after time, people all around them were saying, you know, you should just cut them off. You should just give them tough love. And she never did. And now everybody is glad that she hung in there and never lost faith. Never lose faith in God. You know, some of us feel like we're on a winning streak with prayer. You know, I say, oh, he's answering my prayers. Well, then he turned around and he doesn't, or at least not right away. And a lot of times we're like angry, like, come on, Lord. I tell people all the time about how you answer my prayers. How dare you not answer this one? You know what I mean? Now, I know those, I hope not everybody has that attitude, but at some point in our lives, most of us have had that attitude. At least we may not have expressed it, but we sure felt it down in the well of our heart. But see, their thing is, is that we should never lose faith in God coming through. We should always realize that he's working together all things for our good. We should always realize that, that he is, he is our best ally in life. Jesus Christ is our best friend in life. And no matter what happens, it's what God thinks is the best. And we will someday see why that is. I dare say that anybody here who understands the calling the Lord has on your life, and especially if you're living in it, will start to look back at time, all the difficult times, and see how they were preparation. It softened my heart to go through that tragic, sad thing. Softened my heart for everybody else now going through similar sad and tragic things. And now I have the gift of mercy, and I can actually engage in it. But he's turning all things together for good. You thought it was bad, like Joseph said. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. So never lose faith. Never exhaust your hope. See, our hope ultimately is in the fact that Christ is going to come for us in the clouds and we're going to have a resurrection body at that instant. That's our hope. All right? Well, with that, that's a certain hope. All right? It would be foolhardy to lose that hope. It would be foolhardy in the, to exhaust it and say, I'm done hoping. You know? I'm done hoping. Well, that's fine. But you see, what hope is, is a confident assurance of something that I can't yet see. And so if I lose hope, I'm basically definitely losing sight of it entirely. And that's a horrible, dreadful place to be. Don't do it to yourself. Love doesn't. And love never gives up. No matter how difficult the circumstances become, love will remain right there with you. Love will always be up to the task Love will always be up to the task, no matter how difficult or even impossible the odds. There's no limit to love's burden-sharing, faith, hope, and endurance. And then finally, love never fails. This means that love will never end. It'll never end. It's not, it's not like, you know how your car fails and you've got to get a new one? That's really the idea here. The verb is actually to fall, to fall out, to fall away, to fall down, fall apart. Love will never do that. Love will never end. Think about it. The same love that you know is at the cross, the same love that you know so many times when you know God is love and you've seen him operate in your life, that love will never fade away. It will never end. 
And, and I dare say that as the, as the circumstances of our lives, as we grow older and the horizon looks closer, and we understand that all out of the things that we placed all our trust in were worthless, you know, and only then sometimes do we see the full measure of the love that God has for us. That somehow or other, even when all those things turn out not to be what I wanted them to be, he's still there. And he's somehow making me come to peace with that because of something far greater. And I know that that's love. That's what love is all about. I know that, that God is love and he's working things for me. And I can see there's nothing greater than knowing you're loved. Isn't that the truth? Just knowing that you're loved is greater than anything else. You know, in a marriage or in a family. Yeah, sure, you may have tough times. But if you know that you love each other, you get through it together. And that's what God is. That's who God is. God is love. The love that went so far, like the, like the, the story that Jesus told about the shepherd that had 99 and, and, and one had strayed and he left the 99 and went after the one. There's a time in our life when we're all the one. And yet, look, there's no limit to how far he'll go. David one time said in the Psalms, if I make my bed in hell, you're there with me. That's love. That's a love that will not fall down, fall away, or fall apart. You know, up through chapter 12, Paul has, we've seen this again and again, been correcting, exhorting, prodding the Corinthians to behave according to love. And they know up till now, their behavior has been terrible. So now Paul goes to chapter 13, and this is what he says to them. He says, I've been the one watching you and telling you, do this, don't do that, go here, don't go there. He says, now it's time to change. I've shown you the drama of love, and now it's time for you to take ownership of your own behavior. Restrain yourself. That, that's the fruit of the Spirit that, you know, sometimes seems like it doesn't come till late fall. You know what I'm saying? Self-control. But you see, in order to love, you have to have that self-control. You have to be able to restrain yourself. It's one of the hardest things to do in life is to finally stop blaming other people, stop making excuses I was born that way, I had a rough childhood, I grew up in the ghetto, or whatever it is that you tell yourself as an excuse, and just take ownership of your own behavior. Why? Because when you do that, now you are empowered to change. If you don't take ownership of it, you figure it's somebody else's problem. And until they solve the problem, I don't, I'm off the hook. Well, that, you know, that, that's how a child looks at life. Right? But that's not how a man or a woman looks at life. Finally, you realize that the only way out is to own my behavior, restrain myself in certain areas, act according to love, take care of your brothers and sisters, have their best interests at heart, be devoted to one another in brotherly and sisterly love, act for the common good. You see, no matter where we've been, no matter how we've been hurt, no matter how many bad breaks we've had, all of us can do this. All of us can finally see a community of believers that God has brought us to. And to understand that you have a place. You're every bit as member of the family as anybody else. And you have the greatest father imaginable in God the Father in heaven. And he's working the worst things. I- I'm sure a lot of you have had a tough family life. Did grow up in very difficult circumstances. But realize that God saw it. He allowed it because it will be for your good, all right? especially when you start to behave according to love. You get perspective. You're devoted to one another. You're acting for the common good. Well, of course, Paul was saying all that to the saints at Corinth, but guess what? That same truth and advice is good for us, too. It means that, you know what, we have these 16 characteristics of love in this section, in five verses, four to eight. And I hope you've seen, I certainly have, that they're extremely challenging things. That when you really get to look and study what love does and doesn't do, that's the near challenge in more than one area. I dare say that every one of us was caught up short by one or more of these statements. Because we all have a ways to go when it comes to consistently walking in love. And that's okay. God understands that too. Okay? Love, after all, is the fruit of who? The Spirit. In other words, it's not up to you to produce it. 
You never could. You never can. You never will. It's the Spirit that will produce it. That's the thing to realize. Same thing is true of patience. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control, restraint is a fruit of the Spirit. How does it ever get done? By God, by Holy Spirit, pouring the love of God into our hearts. And here's the key, this love does, we go out and use the love that He's poured into our hearts. Then we're taking charge of our own behavior. Then we're participating, we're cooperating with the, the development of that fruit. Love is the more excellent way. And the more your behavior and mind lines up with these 16 aspects of love, here in verses 4 to 8, the more effective you will be. Effective in the exercise of your spiritual gift. After all, if you don't have those characteristics, you could, have, you could speak with tongues of angels and it's worthless. You're nothing at all. If you have love and you have what some would be considering a more modest gift, like maybe teaching in the, in the uh, Sunday school, like maybe just helping out in areas that nobody else wants to do. Well, that's, that's much more powerful if it's backed by love than somebody who has a great communication gift and could care less about the people he's communicating with, too. Love is the more excellent way, and the more you are, behavior lines up with these 16 aspects of love, the more effective you will be in the exercise of your spiritual gift. All right, now, that's that, that's that section. We didn't finish it last week, so I t- decided we would finish it. But now we're getting to the, the last part of chapter uh, 13, and that's verses 8. You have it right there. You probably don't even have to turn the page. But verses 8 through 13. Now let's read that. I'll read that now. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. You see, at the time Paul wrote to the Corinthians, there were gifts of prophecy. We'll see why. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, this is the gift of knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. The gift of knowledge and the gift of prophecy will be done away when the perfect comes. Because those other gifts were partial. We'll see what that's all about. When I was a child, when you were a child, I used to speak like a child. I used to think like a child. I used to reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, sometime in the future, we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then, sometime in the future, from where Paul wrote in the first century, then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now, faith, hope, love, They abide. They remain. They never go away. The greatest of these is love. You see, in verses 8 to 13, Paul is taking three particular spiritual gifts. Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. And he's taking those gifts and he's putting them in their proper place. They had been exaggerated in importance by the Corinthians. Because these were the things that they really valued you know, in the flesh, okay? Wow, that person just brought out a great word from God. This is really cool. I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell people about it. You know, I, 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 And then tongues. Wow, that's spectacular. Speaking in a language that's unknown to the people here. And knowledge. You know, the gift. It's a gift of knowledge that people had. And we'll see what more of that about. But you see, those had to be put in their proper place then. And, and our gifts have to be put in, our, in their proper place today. And I want you to look at these three gifts, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. Paul did not pick these haphazardly. He's not using these to represent all of the spectacular gifts. No, he's picked these three and these three only. Now, what did they have in common? I'll tell you what they had in common. They revealed truth. The prophets revealed truth. Tongues to a really limited degree. And then, of course, the gift of knowledge. They all revealed truth. They were all 
fancy word is revelatory. It just means they reveal the truth. The thing about the truth they revealed, though, was it's not the whole truth. They were revelatory gifts. They all reveal things. They reveal, by the way, certain truths. Not all of them. The ones that God provided at that time for that audience. You see, you see, Paul hadn't written all the letters of the New Testament yet. All his letters. And so, so they didn't have what we have, which is the whole Bible to draw from. They had the Old Testament, some. Now, the more that Paul went into Gentile lands, of course, the less they knew about even the Old Testament. But, so therefore, now you've got to remember, these people are saints. We've studied so much about what it means to be a Christian, right? What it means to be in Christ. They didn't know any of that. They needed to know that. They were going to go through difficult times that would test their faith, challenge their hope. And so they needed to know things just like we do. We can't get through things sometimes that we don't know that God is working all things together for good. So you can picture a point when the Corinthian church is under a lot of pressure. And even though that hadn't been written by Paul yet in the book of Romans, when when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, it hadn't been written yet. They needed to hear that. And therefore, a prophet would be, God would provide through the Holy Spirit that information, those facts that hadn't been revealed before in order that that group at that time would have what they need in order to walk in their Christian life. By the way, these three gifts, they're not up there anymore, but prophecy and tongues and knowledge, we saw those together recently, and you just go back to verse 1 of chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Remember? If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but to have not love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. The first three gifts that Paul brings up in verses 1 and 2 are tongues, prophecy, and knowledge. Those are the same three gifts he brings back in the last part of chapter 13. Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. That's not a coincidence. That's not a coincidence because he needed to, those in particular, he needed them to understand, have to be grounded in love. And we're going to see those three in particular, he's going to make clear that two of them will will be put away and one will cease of its own accord. They needed to know those things. Now, going back to 1 Corinthians 8 to 13. Again, in verse 8, we see the fact that gifts of prophecy will be done away. Tongues will cease. Knowledge will be done away. Then he goes on. And he says, for we know in part. Notice we know. That's the gift of knowledge. In part. And then he goes on and he says, says, and we prophesy. In part. In part. Not the whole. In part. But when the perfect comes, that's the complete, the whole picture, then the partial will be done away. Notice, he says, we know in prophecy in part, when the perfect comes, the parts will go away. Done away, they're not needed anymore. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. You see, in this section of chapter 13, Paul puts the revelatory gifts in their proper place by drawing five contrasts. Five, okay? In every one, he's saying, there's this now, but this is coming. Okay? And this is greater than what we have now. The first one is between the partial and the complete, or the perfect. Notice what he said. He says in verse 9, we know in part, we prophesy in part, these two gifts of knowledge and prophecy, they're part of the answer. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. The contrast between the partial and the complete, or the perfect. That's the first one. Now, the second one is between that which passes away 
and that which abides. Pass away and abide. And he's saying the gifts will pass away, but there's some, there's some other things that will abide, will remain. The third contrast is between the child and the man. Again, the gifts, so we're seeing a pattern here, and maturity. That's the third one. Okay, there's five. Okay. There, the, last, the fourth one is between seeing dimly in a mirror and seeing face to face. What would you rather do? Would you rather have your loved one behind you and you look into the... The mirrors weren't that good in the first century. They were polished metal. You know, really hard to see very well. Looking in the mirror. What? What is that? I don't get it. I got a little bit. I see a little bit of... Maybe that's a face. Maybe that's an eye. I don't really know. And then you say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn around. (laughs) And I'll see that person face to face. And then, so that's a contrast. And then the, the last one is between knowing in part and knowing fully. Now, the key to all of this, the key that unlocks the meaning here is the fact that all five of these are talking about the same thing. We have five different contrasts, but they're all talking about the same thing. They're all talking about now, with regard to the spiritual gifts, and then sometime in the future, something better. Right? There's a child now, there'll be a man someday. Partial now, there'll be the complete someday, and so forth. See, see in a mirror dimly, because after all, these gifts are only part of the answer, but someday I will see face to face. Each of these contrasts, contrasts what exists now. By the way, now does not mean now now. It's not 2019 now, right? It was when Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians. One of the earlier letters that he wrote, I want you to just park that statement away that I just said. One of the earlier letters that he wrote, okay, 1 Corinthians, what existed now for Paul and when he wrote this letter, that's being contrasted with what will be in the future. Again, reckoning from the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he's saying there will be a time in the future where there will be the fullness, the man, and so forth. It will be in the future. And in the same way that we saw prophecy as a gift is superior to speaking in tongues, That which is perfect is superior to the revelatory gifts. That's why Paul, by the way, featured the revelatory gifts, the one that were giving part of the truth, part of the new information. Okay, Those were chosen because that's the now, and the perfect is in the future. Okay, But remember now, they have something to do with each other. Some people say, you know, Paul here is saying that the, that the spectacular gifts, the miraculous gifts, will all cease. He's not saying that at all. Why? Because they're not all here. <laughs> Healing isn't here in chapter 13. Right? Miracles, it's not here. Those were spectacular gifts. Those were sign gifts. He's not talking about those. He's talking about the three that reveal truth. And that should give us a clue. We'll get to this next two weeks from now. A clue to what the perfect is. Okay? So... Just, just be patient with that. We'll get to that. All right. Faith, hope, and love are of a higher order than any of the gifts. We've seen that about love. They will remain long after these revelatory gifts have ended. All right. Let's begin in verse 8 again. By the way, we will not complete this lesson today. So this will be a two parts this week and then two weeks from now because next Sunday, of course, is Christmas special. First Corinthians. Oops. 1 Corinthians 13.8 Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Prophecy, done away. Tongues, cease. Knowledge, done away. Hope you're seeing there's a difference there. Right? Can you see there's a difference between what's going to happen with prophecy and knowledge? will be done away, and tongues will cease. That's significant. We'll get to that too. All right, so once again, the gifts of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge were revelatory gifts, revealing some of the truth that God knew they needed at that time. Again, other gifts are not included here. Healings and miracles are not included here. For some of us, that's going to help maybe require us to change our thinking a little bit, about what this chapter doesn't say, okay? 
But in any event. <clears throat> so the Lord had new things that he wanted to reveal to the churches. Things he had never revealed before. Now ultimately, he would use Paul's writings to reveal the whole truth. It would have to do with mystery. Mysteries now revealed. Mysteries about Christ. Mysteries about the church. Never been revealed before. All right? That would be the whole truth. Now there are pieces of it. At the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Please go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 2, 6. Yet, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. If I could put it another way, those who are the men and women. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom, notice, in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. See, even here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we see that there are things that God has held back, His hidden wisdom. He, they were never known. But now God is revealing them. He's, he predestined this before the ages began, and now He's revealing it for our glory. And when the Lord did this, the Lord revealed the mysteries, those things that were formerly hidden, but now brought to light progressively. In other words, this, this part, this part, this part, this part. One way to think about that is the partial gifts. It didn't have the whole... But the other way to think about it is that Paul wrote his letters one at a time. It seems obvious, but sometimes we forget this. And he wrote them in a certain chronological order. It's not the same order that we have in the Bible. Okay? It's not Romans 1st and 1 Corinthians 2nd. No, he didn't write it that way at all. As a matter of fact, Galatians is the earliest. Okay? 2 Timothy is, is the last one. But if you look at the, so, this, so that there's a certain order in which he wrote these letters, and that means there's a certain progression in what truth is being revealed. All you have to do is compare in your mind, or go back and read 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, and you'll see it. You'll see that there's a fullness in Ephesians that was only there in a partial way in 1 Corinthians. So not all at once. Paul actually would receive additional revelation from the Lord after he wrote 1 Corinthians. After. He, he would have it revealed to him after that. And then he, would re, then he would write it later on in those what we call the prison epistles, which we'll see. But now in the meantime, portions are given. Those who had the gifts of prophecy and knowledge were given portions of this new mystery. You see, again, the saints needed to know certain of these things in order to just live their lives as Christians. The gift of prophecy was therefore a revelatory gift. God gave his word to his people through a prophet. Now that was true in the Old Testament for sure, right? How did God communicate to the, to the nation of Israel? He used prophets to, be, to speak for him. Well, that, that's the same meaning here, but only now there's new revelation. He, in the early church, he uses the prophets to provide a piece of it to the people. They literally spoke the word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The gift of knowledge is also a revelatory gift. What was it? Well, it basically enabled a person with this gift to do the following. Read the Old Testament scriptures, the only ones that had been written down. Listen to the prophets who were speaking new information at the time. And then do something with all of that information. What? Well, again, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, put together the Old Testament, what the prophets were saying, put it together, and then draw the proper conclusions. Give the proper insights concerning God's truth. And isn't it the same now? Isn't it true that today we, we have the same people with the same gift? Not the same people. The same gift that people have today? In terms of its function now, people who go and look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then they, 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 they think about it, they draw the proper insightful conclusions under the Holy Spirit concerning God's truth. That was the gift of knowledge in the first century. It was, it was needed before the Bible was completed. So, but here's the thing. The gifts of prophecy and knowledge did not contain the complete truth that the Lord had to reveal to the church. It did not contain the complete truth. That's why we read that they were partial. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. 
All right, 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Let's continue. It, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Now, I hinted at this before, but I'm going to say it right now. The, the, this verse, verse 8, treats tongues differently from the other two gifts. This is why we have to be clear in our distinctions and just look at the text itself. The fact is that tongues are treated differently from the two gifts that gave the most information to the people, prophecy and knowledge. Tongues has a very limited use in the church. It has another use that was far more widespread, and the design of God for this gift was primarily something else that had nothing to do directly with the church. That's why it's treated differently. All right, this is what I mean. You can see this in the English, but it's even more clear in the Greek. So we have gifts of prophecy and knowledge, quote, will be done away. The gift of tongues will cease. It doesn't say be done away, it says cease. Now you might say, you know, if, if we're sort of careless about it, we might say, ah, it's the same thing. It's never the same thing. When you see these distinctions, it's not the same thing. It's something different, okay? Prophecy and knowledge will be done away. Gift of tongues will cease. So there's two different Greek words, by the way, and that's why we know it's, they're treated differently. The prophecy and knowledge, we have the same Greek verb, just like in the English, done away, will be done away. Same Greek word. Okay, now here's where we get into some Greek. I, I figured I'd just kind of put this out. You know, you know, there's different stuff for different people sometimes. Like there's some people that really want to key in right now. They've been wrestling with this whole question of uh, the gifts temporary, have they ceased, and um, know a little Greek, and that's great. And, I, and, and that's what this section is for. Others, maybe at a different point, want to say, you know what, I got so much out of what love is, what love does, okay? So there's something here for everybody. But because we live in a, in a time where there's so much in the churches going around about apostles and prophets and speaking in tongues and a special word from God and all of that, we all need to know about what Paul is saying in verses 8 to 13. So, when prophecy, he says, will be done away, when knowledge will be done away, this is the Greek word. All right, it's katargeo. Katargeo. It means the following. Oh, and by the way, did I skip that? Yeah. By the way, um, it's a passive voice. You may say, well, that's too technical. <laughs> Turn the brain off now. Luncheon's going to come up. You know, maybe I'll look at it later, but, well, here's the deal. All right. Passive is different from active and middle. There's three um, tenses. Voice, tense, and mood. There's three, all right? There's passive. This is, no, this is, this is voice, not tense. Passive, middle, active. Passive means to be done to somebody. If I say, I have been hit, right? Something hit me, right? I'm passive, right? Something else hit me. If I say, I hit the bat, that's active. I did it. All right? And sometimes there's a middle voice, which is when you act on yourself. I shaved. All right? All right? That I didn't shave anybody else. Right? I did it, but I did it to myself. Okay. So in any event, here in verse 8, when it comes to knowledge, when it comes to prophecy, it's in the passive. When it says, will be done away, it means an outside force will do away with knowledge and prophecy. Something that is going to come on the scene will itself do away. All right, passive voice. It's indicative, meaning it's a statement of fact. This will happen. By the way, the same Greek word, oh no, let me, oh I, oh, I really helped you on this one. In the passive voice, katageo means to be rendered useless. They didn't do it to themselves. There's probably a capacitor in there, it had to be brought up to charge. Okay, that reminded me of like, you know when you're in the, you see the Indianapolis 500 and they make a pit stop and they're like, <laughs> I, I'm Olivia just now, she was my pit crew. All right, in the passive voice, this Greek word where we say be done away, be done away by prophecy and knowledge, it means to be in the passive now, to be rendered useless. 
Not render itself useless, but to be rendered useless. To be put out of operation, put away by an outside agent. All right, that's important. We'll see why that is. All right, I just want to mention quickly that the same Greek word is also used in verse 10. Kandergeo in the passive. All right. You can look at verse 11. Look at verse 10. All right, it's in the passive. Verse 11. I'm going to go through this quickly. Um, it's there again, but now it's in the active. It's in the active. So let's look at verse, let's look at verse 11. You can see the difference. Oh, I have it in my notes. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. I used to reason like a child and, and, and think like a child. When I became a man, notice what it says. I did away. See, that's, that's active. I did it. Wasn't done to me. I did away with my childish toys. All right. It's in the perfect because it's once and for all. I didn't put the toys away, and then when mom wasn't looking, bring them back out again. Once for all, I'm doing away with that. That, remember, this is an illustration. That were the gifts of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. Okay. All right. So. I don't know about you, but I've had enough of this today. Whoa, one more thing. I want to just let you know that there's another verb for... I'm going to start two weeks from now and, and do this again, but... There's another Greek word, a, second, a separate Greek word here in verse 8 for tongues. For tongues. And it means to cease from an activity in which one is engaged. And, and this is in the middle voice. So you could say, tongues stopped itself. In other words, nothing outside a tongue stopped it. It just knew it was time, put it that way. Personifying tongues. All right? But there's something built into tongues that at the proper time, it just stopped. Right? Nothing stopped it. It just stopped. You know, maybe the Energizer bunny, the battery ran down. <clears throat> like, you know, my microphone just now. It just stopped. And that'll be important because we're going to see they're treated differently. Again, prophecy and knowledge... Be done away. Outside agent stops it. But tongues stops itself. Tongues is different from knowledge and from prophecy. And with that, let's close. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word, which is living and active. Father, we thank you most of all for Jesus Christ. We thank you that when we were dead in our sins, you made us alive on the basis of the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And that you raised him from the dead. We know that whoever believes in your son Jesus Christ never perishes. But you give that person eternal life. We want to thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we also want to thank you for one another here. We thank you that we are a family. That we are with each other at good times and bad times. We bear one another's burdens. We also thank you today, Father, that we have an opportunity to fellowship in a relaxed environment. As we have the luncheon in a few minutes. And we also ask again, Father, for your comfort and support and for your word to be speaking to people's hearts that are in need of that today. We also ask, Father, that we could be the active agent that would go out and let people know the truth that sets them free. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, our next service is this Thursday. We will have a Bible study this Thursday, the 19th. We won't have a Bible study the following Thursday, all right? As always, I ask for your prayer requests. We pray as a group on Thursday evenings. So please provide your prayer requests if you have any. Our website, you can hit, there's a button. There's probably a better word than button. That's what I always use. You see this little box that says prayer requests. You move your mouse over and you go click. And then boom, the screen pops up. My face is on it. Hey, where's your prayer? Not really. But you can enter them there, or you, or you, can, you can enter them there. You can write them down, and there's a place in, in the back. You can, you can put them in there as well. We, uh, we, uh, our giving policy is, is, again, the freely part. God freely gave us his son, right? God freely gives us eternal life. We freely give, right? Whether it's to the mission of the church, whether it's to one another, it ought to be in freedom, the freedom of my heart. I'm doing this not because I have to. Nobody's in my face saying, you didn't tithe 10% this month. We know, because we have your income tax records. You know, <laughs> Nothing like that. All right? Nothing like that. 
Alright, that's why we don't even pass around baskets. Because even that would be coercing people. Alright? You have the opportunity to demonstrate the same giving that God does. And you can do that if you choose for the, to give to this ministry so that the word can continue to go out. Um, you can, there's the box of white, white stand, you can put it in there. If you, and then we're also online. You know, if those of you that like PayPal and sort of, I, I love it now. I never knew about PayPal. Always sorry. I don't know what that is. I'm like, I don't need to learn anything else about, you know, technology and how it's destroying. Oh, wait. Um, but PayPal on the web, another way to do it. I will not be standing at the back with this. You know what I'm saying? Where people walk by and they stuff the pockets of the past. No, that's not what we do here. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for this time where we hear your word, where we have a rich life together. And we, and we thank you, Father, for all your blessings. And we ask now, Father, that the Holy Spirit would take the love in our hearts and tie it to the facts about what love and doesn't do in 1 Corinthians 13. And, and then it would prod us in the right direction to live according to love. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. All righty. Give folks maybe five, ten minutes to set up, and then we'll have the luncheon. It's served. Over there. In my